I'm going to ask something different. If you're here in the room worshiping as opposed to worshiping online, would you stand as we read 1 Corinthians 15? We've been soaking in this, this passage of Scripture for the last couple of weeks. I'm really believing God's going to do something tonight, and I want to read it to you once again with a few extra verses. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we're going to dig into your word tonight. And if you don't show up, and if you don't speak, and if you don't take the scales off our heart and our eyes, we're just going to be spinning our tires. This is supernatural stuff that we're going to dig into. We're going to talk about complicated things. And Lord, we need your spirit to show us what is true. God, if there's anything that I say tonight that is of you, would you kind of drive that deep into our hearts? Would there be a, a confirmation that happens? And God, if there's anything I say that is, that is just of me, would that be quickly forgotten and pushed into the background? God, I believe you're going to be glorified tonight. I believe there's going to be honor brought to your name. And Lord, even if I fumble this message and punt it down the field, we are going to watch somebody step in the baptismal tank and celebrate what we're about to preach about. So God, would you be with us? Would you speak to us? Would you make it clear? And would you make it compelling in your name? Amen. You go ahead and have a seat tonight. We're glad to have you uh, tuning in or worshiping with us. Uh, as we've been going through 1 Corinthians 15, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about through this series is that when I meet with people about the Christian faith, when I talk to people in the community, eventually there are people who say, you know, I like what you do, I like who you are, I like your church, but there are some things that I just can't believe. There are some things I can't ascribe to. Uh, there are objections to faith or objections to belief, but one of the things that I've noticed as I've dug into what Paul has said is of first importance, in my experience, my personal experience, nobody has rejected faith because we say Jesus died on the cross. I've not had that yet. Maybe you have. I have yet to have the person that says, you know, I would love to believe. I like everything. I take it all, except this idea that there was a man named Jesus who died on a cross. That I reject. What I do find to be true is the part about the resurrection. Like, I get this Jesus man. I mean, at this point in time, any reputable, credible scholar, atheist or Christian, agrees the man Jesus lived on the earth, and he was probably crucified. 
Where it goes sideways to faith is when we start preaching and teaching and say, well, this man Jesus that you know in history died on the cross, but three days later raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. Oh, did we tell you how his story began? Virgin birth. Mm. Mm. This is why I don't go to church. Like there's this idea where, hey, we love the humanity side. We love the good deeds in the community. But uh, virgin births and resurrections and blind gaining their sight and deaf people hearing and lame walking and this whole supernatural business, that's often where people push back from the table. And so it's interesting that the cross does not seem to be the part that people can't believe happened, but the resurrection part and it's interesting to me, even as you look at this, this passage from Paul, he just kind of states that Jesus died, was crucified, in keeping with the scriptures and moves on. But when he gets to resurrection, he gives multiple verses defending the resurrection. He states the crucifixion, he defends the resurrection. And so tonight I want to talk to you about this idea of resurrection. If we take Paul's words seriously, as I believe we should, he's saying, like, I want to remind you of the good news. I want to remind you of the gospel, this thing that is of first importance, and he lays it in half. He died for us, and he resurrected. We already did that he died for us last week. If you missed that, if you've not seen that one yet, uh, you can go and watch that on YouTube or Facebook. You can scroll back and dig into the crucifixion side. But this idea of resurrection— I want to dig into tonight because as you mill around the community, people already think faith and church is outdated. Then you start doling around resurrection language. Like, see, that's the problem with the church. You're not catching up to the rest of the world that knows these things don't happen. So I want to dig in, and the first thing I want to talk about is what exactly do we mean when we say resurrection? Because we may have different understandings of what a resurrection is. They had different understandings then. It's plausible that we have different understandings now. But then and now, when we, at least in this church, when we're preaching and we, we read Paul, when we say resurrection, we mean that people physically died. They remained dead for a period of time, and then they were physically made alive again. That is a resurrection. Physical, physical death, a period of time passes, and a, physical, uh, a person made physically alive again. Now, some people will take a resurrection, and they'll take the physical death, but they'll insert a spiritual resurrection. Like, I don't know about this physical business, but yes, if you want to believe that our spirit is resurrected and it goes on to live, maybe it goes on to live multiple times over and over and over, you know, I can kind of get on board with the spiritual resurrection, but I can't really swallow a physical resurrection. But the physical resurrection is the dividing point. If Paul wanted us to believe in a spiritual resurrection, he would have taught that. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. He says, But our citizenship, those who uh, are in Christ, is in heaven. And from it, uh, we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to be subject 
even to subject all things to himself. Paul writes this after the resurrection, and he's saying to the church that we are in this lowly, broken, corrupted body for a season, but someday we will have a body like his glorious body, the resurrected one. Now, in your Bible, it just says body and body. And some will say, well, that was a physical busted body, and then it was a spiritual body on the second side. But in Greek, when Paul writes that, he says, your lowly soma. He uses the Greek word for physical body that you could use for a human, a dog, anything living. This physical body, this soma, will be like his glorious soma. So when he writes this, this lowly broken body will be resurrected, made new like his resurrected body. If he wanted to say spirit, he would have said pneuma. There is a Greek word for spirit. And if he wanted to teach us a spiritual resurrection, he would have said this lowly soma will be made like his glorious pneuma. Paul's not stupid. He is intentionally saying your broken body will be resurrected like his body. It's physical. It's just different. And so even back then, they believed in physical death, physical resurrection. The difference was not every Jewish person believed in a resurrection. It's not like if you were a Jewish uh, God-fear, you walked around believing in a resurrection. But if you believed in a resurrection, this is what you believed— it would happen to the people of God at one point altogether at the end of time. There were no Jewish people walking around thinking, you know, at any moment, somebody might just break out of the grave. And we don't know when and we don't know who, but be ready. We're going to see us a resurrection. Nobody. It wasn't like they walked around believing, like, come on, give us that resurrection. We know it's coming. Nobody was expecting Jesus to resurrect from the grave. The second question I want to answer, not just what we mean by it, we mean a physical death, physical resurrection. We, we mean that. The question is, how can we possibly mean that? Like, how in 2020 can we actually say among educated people that we actually believe in a resurrection, or, and specifically a resurrected Jesus? Now, if you were here attending our church a couple years ago when we did the Doubting Your Doubts series, I preached a version of this sermon back then, and I'm reusing a lot of the content. I reworked a lot of it. Um, But here's the deal. Paul said, let me remind you of first importance. Which So my thing to you is let me remind you of first importance. It's not like they're releasing new evidence on the resurrection. It's not like, hey, we have new things we want to teach you about resurrection. The things we rally around have been rallied around for 2,000 years. So if you hear this, I I heard you teach on that before. Yes, it's, it's called the evidence for the resurrected Jesus. And if you come back in five years and I preach on the resurrected Jesus, you'll be like, you said this already. Yes, this is the evidence. And so I want to remind you of the evidence of the resurrected Jesus, plus I sprinkled in some new stuff for your listening pleasure. The first and arguably the greatest evidence for the resurrected Jesus is the empty tomb. Shocker. We believe in an empty tomb. When they went there, he was gone. Now, there's been tons of objections as to why he's gone and where he went. And one of the most common ones is that somebody stole his body. 
Now, if you were going around preaching a resurrection, it would make sense to steal the body. The problem was they weren't expecting Jesus to resurrect then. Nobody was. So it wouldn't have crossed their mind to steal the body. Secondarily, if you were going to steal his body to show an empty tomb, it would be unhelpful for you and for I to have that body walking around town later that day. So if you were going to steal it, you wouldn't want it showing up again. So this idea of it being stolen seems a little bit silly, and at, at, at worst or best, a very poorly executed plan. Many people have said they went to the wrong tomb. I've said this to you before. Many of you can still point to the spot where your parents buried your childhood dog or cat. You remember right where that is, let alone a loved one in your family. Some of you will drive to great distances to go and stand by and honor a loved one who was buried. Anybody driven to the wrong community and stood by the wrong graveside? I doubt it. You're telling me just three days, not three years, not three decades, three days later they went to the wrong one. Also, we know that it wasn't Jesus' tomb he was laid in. He was laid in the tomb of a rich man. Do you know what rich people don't lose? Their stuff. That's why they stay rich. So this guy who knows where his tomb is, he's not getting lost. They were not at the wrong tomb. And then, of course, the, the, there's just the, 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 the really lazy argument. Well, Jesus just didn't die. That's why he's not there. Need I remind us to go back to week two and talk about the Romans' ability and effectiveness to end people's life? I mean, we've buried a lot of people in this church. To my knowledge, and I mean no disrespect, to this date, we haven't got any of them wrong. Imagine the Romans who perfected crucifixion oopsed on Jesus. Of all the people they could have ooped on, they ooped on the guy walking around saying, I'm the Messiah and I'm here to challenge Rome. If you're going to get one right, you're going to get that guy's death right. He was dead, fully dead. The other defense that goes with the empty tomb, because if you just have an empty tomb, that's not sufficient. You also need eyewitnesses to have a resurrection. Otherwise, you just have a missing body. So we have the empty tomb, but we also have the eyewitness account of the resurrected Jesus. Now, when we read Paul's letter, as we just did, he lists names of people from the community. Now, we might say, well, you could just name anybody. You could, unless the letter was written within 20 years of the event. I could start naming off things that have happened in this physical building in the last 20 years, and I could make up all kinds of fictitious stories and lies of what happened here. I could tell you about the day that Dave Wilcox levitated and flew out of this building. You're like, I don't know who Dave Wilcox is. Some of you do. I could tell you about the time that I repelled from the ceiling, backflipped like a ninja, and landed and started preaching. Like, uh, I'm not going to be here that Sunday, but I would have heard about that. <laughs> Like, you can't make up stuff inside 20 years because some of you were there. Paul doesn't even say some of you were there. He names the some of the people. Like, some of you, I was thinking about this this week, uh, power team. Does that mean anything to any of you? Like, not many of you, but some of you were there. And if I told you that I lifted 1,000 pounds of flaming weight over my head, 
And it's true because Brian was there and John was there and Scott was there. You'd be like, well, who's John, Scott, and Brian? Because <laughs> I wasn't there, but I need to hear about this. And you go find John, Scott, and Brian. They say, mm, no, he sure didn't. I was there. It dies. So he goes so far as to say, you can go ask these people. It's within the last 15 to 25 years from the time Jesus resurrected to the time Paul's letters were circulating. We also know through history that none of the named people ever recant their story. I find that one incredibly fascinating. None of the people that Paul named and none of the 500 ever in a moment of weakness or pressure, nobody in a back room was like, hey, listen, I was one of the 500. It's not real. We all got together. We did the flash mob thing, you know. We all tweeted back and forth and we Facebooked back. We started a Facebook group and we all agreed, you know, we'll all bind together. We'll all cook this Jesus thing up. Nobody cracked. Not that nobody cracked in the back room, but nobody cracked upon facing death to recount that story. That's incredible to me. As I've said to you before, and I'll say it again, my sister and I, just two of us in our household, could not unite and bind our stories together to avoid punishment from our parents. Two people couldn't unite for the sake of our own skin. And yet more than 500 people bound together and upheld this known lie. The other issue, in the recounting of the resurrection, one of the things you would not do in first century is list women. These people in first century were not woke. Really? Nobody? I'm going to go for that. You guys are going to leave me hanging? Like, they're not adding women to this to be equal and to be representative. In fact, adding women to a first century historical account was not positive. It was not neutral. It weakened the argument. And I wonder to myself, as Paul was penning the defense of the gospel, if anybody at any point was in his ear saying, Psst, I like what you're doing. I like that you include the ladies but you do know your cause would be a lot stronger, just drop the women's names. He's like, I can't. Some of them were the first ones on the scene. If I drop that, it erodes the case. You're telling me nobody pressured him to drop that to strengthen what he was going to do? Maybe more people would come to Christ if you dropped the ladies' names. Maybe more people would believe if you would soften what you're saying and just remove that unnecessary detail. And Paul's like, well, I can't. That's not what happened. This is what happened. These, this is who was there. The third, the third evidence of why we believe in a resurrection is the transformation of the disciples. Now, I'm not even going to use tonight but the transformation of how they defended and how they died a noble death. I did that back in Doubting Your Doubts. I actually want to make a different point. I said to you earlier in this sermon that nobody in the first century, no Jewish person, was believing in an individual resurrection in the middle of time. And yet, and yet, Paul bumps into this resurrected Jesus and immediately changes his entire life, entire narrative, and entire story, and immediately goes all in to say, I'm all about this resurrection. 
Nobody believes in it up until this point. And then a bunch of people who bump into this resurrected Jesus completely go all in on this one idea. It happened right now, one guy in the middle of history. Like, didn't they at least want to slow roll that out? Didn't they read any leadership books on change management? You don't revolutionize culture by going all in like a couple of renegades. You soft launch it. You beta test this resurrection idea. You leak it and see how some of the influential people in your community respond to it. We know how to do change management. You don't go all in. And yet these guys who previously had never preached, taught, or believed possible a resurrection went all in. And if you check their language, check the historical accounts, they don't even hedge their bets. Like, I think I'm a pretty bold personality, but if I'm going first, I think I'm saying, you know, I want you to follow Jesus. I follow Jesus. He's our Messiah. Like, I'm pretty sure he resurrected. I think he did it. Do you hear it? At no point do they say, I think he resurrected. They say, he is alive. He has risen. If I tell you right now that I think it's raining outside, you know what I'm doing, right? I'm giving myself the out that if you go outside and check and it's not raining and you come back to me and say, it's not raining, I can say to you, I told you I thought it was raining. I didn't say it was raining. And these guys don't hedge anything. How easy would it have been for them and less painful would it have been for them? They just said, I think he resurrected. I think it happened. Nope. He is alive. He has resurrected. And Paul goes so far as to say, if Jesus didn't resurrect, then nobody resurrects. And if nobody resurrects, you're still in your sin and your faith is futile and this is all pointless. That's all in immediately on, the, on their transformation as they go forward. Now, I want to press in on you. That I'm not even going to answer this. I just want you to ponder on this as you leave tonight. How is it that the early disciples and the first century Christians went all in and based their entire walk and followership of Christ around something that happened in history, and we base all of our discipleship around warm, fuzzy feelings of faith? I mean, I love John Wesley, but John Wesley's own testimony of faith was that his heart was strangely warmed. I'm for the move of the Spirit. But when the disciples faced death, they did not say, I will die because my heart was strangely warmed. They put their life on the line because they had come face to face with a resurrected Jesus and something had happened. So if your heart is warm, that's awesome. <laughs> Are you banking it all on actually on the resurrection? The fourth reason that we, that we believe in a resurrected Jesus, is the explosive growth of Christianity. Again, I rewrote this one for you for kind of some fresh content around this idea. But Jesus claims to be the Messiah. He grabs 12 misfits and pulls them around himself. He is killed, and then his followership grows after his death. I enjoy being your pastor. I don't know if you knew that or not. I like that our church is growing. But if I'm ever not your pastor and you explode with growth after I'm gone, I won't be happy. <laughs> I'll be very jealous. 
of whoever it is that is exploding this church in growth because I want to do it. How is it that when the leader is on the scene, it does not explode, but after his death, it explodes? Now, the other cool thing is if you study the Messiah claims, history and good history at that records that we have at least 12 reputable leaders who made a claim for messiahship through history. Now, I'm not talking about like the village idiot who went around saying, I'm the next messiah, not that guy. I'm talking like reputable people who formed armies to conquer and fight Rome, claiming they were the messiah. We have other accounts. Here are two of my favorite that happened to two of the guys who claimed messiahship. Simon Bar Chachba, I'm not a Jewish man, but I took a run at it. He founded a short-lived Jewish state. He made it that far. Being defeated by the Jewish-Roman War, the Talmud, the Jewish writings record that there was so much bloodshed, the blood of the Jewish people rippled for 40 miles to the sea. I don't know what that means. That means a guy stood up, had an army, and said, I'm the Messiah, follow me. And Rome said, oh yeah, watch this. Rome took that army and ground them into dust, where history says the blood soaked the soil for miles and miles on end. That's what happens to when you, when you claim to be Messiah. Moses of Crete, around the 400s, claimed to be the next Messiah. He rallied a bunch of Jews and walked into the sea just like Moses the patriarch had done. And he said, just like the first Moses, if you follow me, we're going to walk into the sea and I'm going to part the sea. It ended disastrously. They walked into the sea and followed their Messiah. And the majority of them drowned that day. He escaped never to be seen again. This is our history. This is historical stories of people who said, I'm a Messiah, and this is what happens to them. How is it that a humble carpenter's son said, well, I'm going to make a run at the Messiahship thing too. I'm going to grab these 12 people, these nobodies, and I'm going to give up my life. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to build a secret state in Rome. I'm not going to lead people like the Israelites out of captivity. I'm just going to live a subversive life and culture. And they're going to kill me. And within 300 years, the Roman Empire will claim faith in Christianity because it is the popular majority. How did that happen if not for encountering a resurrected Jesus? The fifth one I want to say that I have not taught on here before, that I believe in a resurrected Jesus, is how we now view the beauty of the cross. Like, that's not the resurrection. Give me a second. I think we cling to the resurrection of Jesus because of how we have now viewed the cross. Imagine how foolish it is that some of you have a cross around your neck. Do I need to recant, or recount week two of this sermon series? Did I not tell you what a cross was? A cross was invented to increase the pain of death that was inflicted upon you. Why are you wearing that as jewelry around your neck if it has not been redefined by history? 
The thought that you are wearing a cross around your neck or some of you have it tattooed on your body or paintings in your house or on the favorite coffee mug of which you drink, how is it that you would do that but you would never think to have a prison cell painting on your wall? Why don't some of you have little guillotines around your neck? How is it that you don't have needles, guns, and knives as jewelry around your neck? How is it that an object that was used to kill thousands and thousands and thousands of people, arguably the most excruciating way in history, is adorned as an object of jewelry in our homes, mine and yours? Because I contend to you that something happened after the cross that leads us to redefine how we see the cross. How is it that an object of torture and death is an object of beauty, forgiveness, and freedom now if it weren't for the resurrection? I told you this series. I told you that news is meant to say something happened. Jesus died and resurrected. I told you that the second part of news is that the world is forever a different place after news happens. I told you this, right? The world has been forever a different place because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Two billion people bear his name in 2020 because of what happened that weekend. I told you a third thing, that it's your responsibility to decide how you will live in the world in light of what happened. And there are some of you like, I don't feel the warm fuzzies at church. That's fair. So I'm like, I don't even like your preaching. Well, that's fair too. I definitely don't like the Wesleyan doctrine. Couldn't care. Our faith is not in those things. Our following Jesus is based on the reality that something happened. The world is a different place. And the question we ask ourselves is how will we live? And for a bunch of us in this room and for a bunch of us watching, we have laid down our pithy little kingdoms, our silly little things that we used to chase around. And we have said, no, no, the world's a different place. I have seen something with fresh eyes in a way I've never seen it before. And I've laid it all down and I'm putting my hope, my trust, my confidence with the guy who died and resurrected for me. We each have to make that choice. We each have to look at the account, look at the news and say, is it news or is it good news? It's only good news when you receive it and apply it to yourself. So maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you're like, I just like coming. It's a nice little hour. This is not trite information. If Jesus resurrected, I'm going all in on that guy. And if he didn't, I want no part of it, nothing. I will do something else with my life. And I have come to the place in my life that Jesus died for me and resurrected, and I will have resurrection in him.